Father, we come to you, and indeed you are the Holy One. <laughs> you are the Lord God Almighty who reigns above all. And Father, in your grace, you have given us salvation through your Son who has served as the mediator between us and you. And Father, we are grateful. Lord, as we're going to look at the book of Jude, the latter part, the closing words, we're reminded yet once again that it is you who go before us. Lord, it is you who sees fit that there, we do not fall, but that we stand. And a day we will stand in your presence. Lord, guide us as we go to the text this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would turn to Jude, we're at verses 23 and 24, excuse me, 24 and 25. I think I know where we are. <laughs> I, it's good to see who the sheep are on a Memorial Day weekend that you're here, so well done. We'll, two points for those online, five for who are in present. No. <laughs> we're glad you're here this morning, worshiping with us. We have been journeying through this book, and I'm excited next week we'll, we'll begin our study on the life of David as we move through portions of 1 Samuel and Chronicles, so hopefully you can begin that series with us next week. But we've been journeying through the book of Jude, this little epistle nestled in the latter part of the New Testament. We have journeyed, we saw the opening in verses 1 and 2, which were key, and we're going to come back to that even here in the closing words. We then looked at the body of the letter, the purpose, as he's told us, he changed course because unlike Second Peter, where the false teachers were standing on the outside, knocking at the door with one foot in like a salesman or a saleswoman, this epistle, the false teachers are reclining at the table. They're in the living room. They're in the church, they're teaching, they're, they're involved in leadership. And Jude is very concerned. And so he changes course of action. And as we've seen, we saw the warnings against the apostasy. That means to fall away, ways to avoid it. And he gets now to the doxology. In so doing, he describes these false teachers. And I think this is helpful just as a reminder as we wrap up this book today. Remember, they're skeptical of prophecy. This idea that Christ is going to return, that the end is near, forget it. No way. They deny any future judgment. Of course they would. Because <laughs> they, they want to live life like they want to. So the idea of having to be held accountable, mm, no, that doesn't go well. They applaud freedom and encourage each person to determine their own truth. Sound familiar? It's the day we're living in. Uh, whatever fits you, that's great. Just don't tell me how to live. <laughs> They endorse a lifestyle that fulfills personal desires while wearing a cloak of religiosity. False teaching always is accompanied by immoral lifestyle. They go hand in hand. It's a license to live as you want because ultimately, who's God? You. <laughs> so you can do what you want in that type of a system. Knowing all this, the purpose of why he's writing, he comes now to these closing remarks. And it's, it's a fitting capstone to the letter. Notice he says, now, this is the text that was read earlier, to the one who is able to keep you from falling, he's referring to the Lord Almighty, to cause you to stand rejoicing without blemish before his glorious presence, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, 
be glory, majesty, power, and authority before all time, which is an interesting phrase we'll get to now and for all eternity. And then he gives a big hearty amen. Let's look at this text. And if you're following along in your notes, you'll see there in the content, the first part of this here is going to be some things that the Lord is doing. These two verses are called a doxology. Uh, it's a liturgical piece, so to speak. It's a spontaneous, often short ascription of praise to God. And it frequently appears in New Testament writings. You'll see them peppered throughout. However, there's only two books that end in a doxology. This book, obviously, and Jude, or excuse me, Romans. Romans actually has two. Has one in the middle and has one at the end. This doxology fits the template that we see throughout the New Testament. There's four components. First, there's an acknowledgement of who is to be praised. Here it's the Lord Almighty, right, who is to be praised. The attributes that are ascribed, which we see here. The extent of the praise that is to be given. And a conclusion of amen. So these four components we're going to see as we go through the letter. But notice he begins by identifying the Lord's actions. He's going to affirm the Lord's work in their lives via a prayer. So the prayer is going to wrap this sucker together as he's delivering it to his audience. And it's important because they're in a spiritual battle. Jude has already talked about that. Things are difficult. And so what does he do? He takes us to the Lord. It's very theocentric. It's how he began the letter. In fact, go back to verses 1 and 2. Let's just jog our memory. It's been a while. From Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ, to brother James, to those who are, here it is, called, wrapped in the love of God, the Father, kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be lavished on you. It's all theocentric. It's how he began the letter. It's how he will end the letter. And that's vital. It's vital because, in other words, this spiritual battle that they're involved in, which we're involved in, you cannot do it on your own. You're toast apart from the Lord. You need his involvement. And that, that's what Jude is recognizing as he writes the letter. And so he says, first, the Lord is able to keep you from falling. It's interesting. Remember the Psalms? Several times it talks about what do the wicked do? They set a trap. <laughs> they want you to trip. They want to put the foot out, right? So that, kaboom, down you go. The Lord, however, preserves the path of the righteous. Psalm 66, he preserves our lives and does not allow our feet to slip. This is not a new topic for Jude. We saw that in verse 1, the text I just read. He keeps you to the day of Jesus Christ. And, and later in verse 23, believers are not to fear because he's the one who sustains. And so Jesus, first of all, he's going to keep you from falling. This keeping is a preserving or a guarding. It's deliberate. It's intentional. Seeing that leaves us with several implications, doesn't it? As I look at Jude and what he's commenting here, first is it implies we need assistance. <laughs> It's saying you're going to need the sovereign God to help you not stumble. Years ago, 
our daughter was going to go out on an ice skating rink. She had never really been on an ice skating rink. And I said, well, I'll go with her. Now, keep in mind, I'm not a Scott Hamilton. So, but I thought, I can help. I'm okay. I'll be out there. Well, she started to fall, and I fell on top of her. <laughs> and it got worse, because I couldn't get up. And it got worse because the young man who was running the ice skating rink, he freaks out. So he calls an emergency squad. They're coming. I mean, everyone stops. And it's just a delight. And my daughter was okay. I was so-so. But we survived. I couldn't help her from falling. I tried. But I went right down with her. I needed someone as well. I kind of looked like a giraffe on stilts. It was awful. The Lord says, I am here. And the implication is that we're going to need some assistance. And again, verses 1 and 2 tells us that. That without the Lord's assistance, it's impossible to live the Christian life. Second implication, he is aware of our situation and our inner being. And think about, the Lord knows our weaknesses. He knows our shortcomings. Uh, the verse that was read earlier in the prayer, 1 Corinthians 10, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tried beyond what you are able to bear. I mean, think about that. He, he, he's not here to, to beat you up. He's, he's here to have you glorify him. And so it says, but with the trial, he'll also provide a way out so that you may be able to endure it. And if we sin in the process... What? He's ready to extend forgiveness. Psalm 103, he does not deal with us as our sins deserve. He does not repay us as our misdeeds deserve. For as the skies are high above the earth, so his loyal love towers over his faithful followers. As far as the eastern horizon is from the west, so he removes the guilt of our rebellious actions from us. He knows we need assistance. He's aware of our situation and our inner being. Another implication that he keeps us from falling is that he's capable of doing it. <laughs> he's capable of delivering and protecting. Clearly, I couldn't do that for my daughter. That was embarrassing. All right? But think about the Lord. Just listen to some of these Psalms. For you, O Lord, Psalm, 1, uh, Psalm 11, will protect us. You will continually shelter us from these evil people. Psalm 16, hide me in the shadow of your wings. Psalm 120, the Lord will protect you from harm. Psalm 144, the Lord protects all those who love him, but all those who are wicked, he destroys. <laughs> The Lord not only gives us the opportunity, well, allows to assist us, he understands us, he's able to do it, but finally he gives us the privilege of calling upon him. Think about it, you have the God of the universe to hold your hand. He's great on ice skates. He'll protect you, and let's face it, it's in the times of need that God's hand is seen most clearly, isn't it? It's in our weakness that we witness the Lord's resources. Just ask Hannah. As she shared her testimony, I was thinking through Psalm 144 and his hand of protection. To be there last night with Sharon as she knelt by the bed and wept, but rejoiced that Paul is in the presence of the Lord. That's what he's able to do. That's what our Lord is able to do. And he gives us the privilege to come to him why? Because what does the text say? What does Psalm 1, verse 1 say? He's wrapped us in his love. 
This tortilla is not coming unwrapped. It's tight. He's got his arms wrapped around us. They're in, we're his. Those who've called upon the Lord to be their savior. But he's not done. Notice what else. He not only keeps you from falling, but he causes you to stand. And Jude assures his readers that this is what the Lord will do. It's a great contrast. He, he shows us what the Lord will not allow us to happen to us, but he also tells us what the Lord will do for us. The word here for stand, I think, is, could be taken both literal and figuratively. Uh, he's not going to let you fall into unbelief or succumb to the forces of evil. The believers will be established in their faith. In other words, it's not by the skin of your teeth. <laughs> Whew, I made it into heaven, like making the doors before they closed at the gate at the airport. No, no, no. And Jude provides some clarification concerning the standing. Don't miss this here as he lays this out. He gives us three ways that he does this. First, he says you're going to stand with praise. Did you see this? Rejoicing. Again, it's not by the skin of your teeth. It's with joy that you're there. Joy is often associated in the New Testament with the end, the future that awaits, when Christians will stand with Christ in all his glory. There's, in other words, there's an eschatological end-time expectation that is rooted in our unshakable faith in the midst of onslaught from the false teachers, in the midst of the world that is so hostile to the church, we stand rejoicing. And we will stand to the end before the Lord. I love this prayer from one of the Puritans. It says, there is no joy like the joy of heaven. For in that state are no sad divisions, unchristian quarrels, contentions, evil desires, hunger, cold, sadness, sin, suffering, persecution, toils of duty. Oh, healthy place where none are sick. Oh, happy land where all are kings. How free a state when no, where none are servants except to thee. Bring me speedily to the land of joy. The Christian life is not about doom and gloom. I know, you get this picture of a Puritan sucking on prune juice, afraid, you know, somewhere someone is smiling. No, that's not the Christian life. We should be some of the most joyful people walking the globe. Why? Because we are kept in the love of God. We, we are going to be kept standing until the end before our Lord. He's not done. He says, not only do you stand rejoicing, you will stand in purity. You'll stand without blemish. The phrase is used of sacrificial animals. It's used in Hebrews saying they are flawless. You say, well, how can that be? <laughs> I know my life. How is it possible? 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us. So that in him, if you've accepted Christ as your savior, what does the text tell us? We would become the righteousness of God. When you stand before the Lord, what does the Lord see? The righteousness of his son. That's why the text says it's through, notice verse 25, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So you will stand praising. You'll stand in purity. And the third thing that you'll do is you will stand, and I love this, in his glorious presence. <laughs> that phrase occurs three times in the New Testament, and it is always in connection with an eschatological standing. In other words, it is the end. When you will stand, Colossians 1, but now he's reconciled you by his physical body through death to present you holy without blameless. Uh, blemish and blameless before him. That's what we long for. 
This is, this is what is promised to God's people. Again, remember, this is in the context of the false teachers who are seeking to undermine all of this. And Jesus, no, 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 no. I've identified who you are, verse 1. Now I'm going to remind you what God is doing in light of that. There won't be a line where you wait until your number comes up, is called, in order to meet the king. There's not an appointment scheduled for a future date or a series of office administrators you must work through to get there. No, we will be in the presence of the one who loves us, the one who died for us, the one who is victorious over death. And I don't know about you, that thought is incomprehensible. <laughs> that is exciting. To know this is the one without blemish God's people will stand at the very radiance of God Almighty. <laughs> The promise of lasting joy, purity, and the opportunity to abide in the Lord's presence are the very things the false teachers, that is, these ungodly ones, cannot offer. I mean, think about our study of Jude. The rebellious Israelites, oh, they were destroyed. The fallen angels, well, they're kept in eternal chains until the day. The residents of Sodom and Gomorrah, well, they indulged in, they were enslaved to sexual immorality. Cain's path embraced greed. Balaam's way resulted in abandoning truth. Korah's rally led to a disastrous rebellion. If we do not recognize that God is there to assist us from falling and desirous that we are able to make us stand, then we are left to our own vices. A couple of weeks ago, someone showed me this article from Bitcoin Magazine. I about fell out of my chair when I read it. It's in the red. It says, we know that God is dead. He's been dead for a long while now, long enough that we can understand that he is not coming to save us. In fact, it has been long enough that we know now it is we who need to save him. You say, oh, that's shocking. That's the false teachers of Jude. They're saying the same thing. I mean, look, look at this. This article, written by, I don't know who, in Bitcoin magazine and the false teachers, one, they fail to see that God's assistance in life. They fail to see that this is the God who causes you not to fall, who helps you to stand. Consequently, they assume God is incapable of assisting. Worse yet, they presume that God needs their assistance. Who really is God? Perhaps they need to consider Queen Clementiana's words, mirror, mirror on the wall. Because all you need to do is look at the mirror. That's your God. Today, of any time in my life, we're witnessing firsthand those who seek to rewrite the script and attempting to thwart God's plan. They deny God's creation and the head of creation, that is Christ. In so doing, the world is seeking to undermine God's character as it's displayed in general revelation, and they dismiss Christ and the Word as it's disclosed in special revelation. In an article this week in The Federalist entitled, Corporate America Has Launched a Religious War, It's Time to Choose Your Side, John Daniel Davidson writes the following. Listen to this, it's dynamite. He says, we are faced with the religion of the world, that makes a claim over and against reality and the created order. 
which are denied and disfigured in man's attempt to arrogate the power to recreate himself according to his own desires. Indeed, this goes back to the Garden of Eden, does it not? For you shall be like God. Sadly, it's not just on the outside of the church. It's crept into the church as well, where we are rewriting what God has laid out. <laughs> and and we're, we're toying with these things, seeking to follow the path of Cain, Balaam, and Korah. And yet, for the person enslaved to Christ, that is the person who's been called, wrapped in the love of God, and will be kept for Christ, that individual can stand and it's a stance of joy, it's a stance of purity, and it's an incredible privilege. <laughs> and so Jude says, as he's praying this over the, his readers to remind them, this is what the Lord is, can and is and will do. But he also is not done, because he also is going to point us to who God is. In a pluralistic society, Jude reiterates that all praise goes solely to God. Do you notice what he says? To the only God. There are no others. One commentator writes, What idols might we be worshiping even as we recite these words? I thought of John, when he ends first John, his first epistle, what does he say? It's really unusual. He says, keep yourself from idols. Well, idolatry wasn't an issue with first century Jews. It wasn't an issue in the early church. What is he referring to? Anything that eclipses who God is and what God has done. And this commentator says, God is the only God. He demands all of our worship, obedience, and there's nothing that can rival our affections for him. Again, this is the problem with the false teachers. They were unwilling to submit. They were unwilling to say what Jude said in verse 1 from Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ. No, no, no. <laughs> the false teachers are saying, uh, we're co-masters here. And the Lord, you can have this point. You can't have this. I'll take this. You can have that. It's a smorgasbord of, of approach. That is not an option with the Lord. Notice that Jude refers to, how he refers to God. The only God, our Savior. Now that's a common concept in the Old Testament that God is Savior. But in the New Testament, 18 times, Jesus is referred to as the Savior. And so it's a little unusual at first here. But eight times in the New Testament, God the Father is referred to as Savior. It's very interesting here what Jude is doing. He, he kind of enters this Shema, our only God, the one and only. And in so doing, he's declaring that it is God the Father who is the Savior, who accomplishes the work through his Son. Notice it says, through Jesus Christ, who is our Lord which is very common in the New Testament because all of creation and redemption is mediated through Christ. And I think that's what Jude is trying to do. is trying to draw attention not only to what God is doing, but to Christ. And that fits with his opening verse as well. Colossians 1, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in his Son and through him to reconcile all things to himself by making peace through the blood of the cross. Through him, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Christ is the only one who can mediate the glory and authority that we see here. 
He then ascribes four attributes. Now, if you've been an astute student, this would have been a question on the test, but we're not going to have one today. Uh, Jude loves triads. This is the only time he does not use examples of three. He gives us four attributes. And you go, whoa, Jude, what are you doing? You know, typically it's three in other doxologies, but he breaks out in four. I think for three reasons. I won't go to a firing squad on this, but this is what I think Jude is doing. Number one, I think he's showing us the uniqueness of God in light of the false teachers. God is in his own category. I've done these threes, Caleb, Balaam, and Korah. You know, I've done these threes. Now, when I refer to God, it's in his own league altogether. And that's, again, the problem with the false teachers. They're trying to bring God down to their level. They're stripping God of his awesomeness, his uniqueness. And that's the danger of the world we live in. But I would also argue Jude cannot contain his praise. He's just overexcited. John Stott makes this comment, and I think it's in your notes. Doctrine leads to doxology as well as to duty. Jude has been rehearsing who God is, what God has done in the past, and he can't help but break out in praise. And then a third reason is there's certainly a stylistic reason it gets your attention. You're expecting this one, two, three, one, two, three. And all of a sudden, boom, he goes into four. Well, let's look at the four. Notice what he says first. Be glory to this one, our only God. This is a common attribute ascribed in almost all of the doxologies you're going to find in the New Testament. It was already mentioned in uh, verse 24. He's repeating it again here. It's not that God needs glory. Don't, don't miss this. Uh, in fact, O'Brien in his work on doxology says to give God glory is not to add something to him. Rather, it's an active acknowledgement or extolling of what he is or already done. So it's, it's recognizing the Psalm 24. Who is the king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. A scene in Jesus' encounter, you know, I, I think of the, the triumphal entry. Remember that uh, the religious rulers didn't want the crowd to give praise and glory to Christ. And what does Christ say? Well, if they don't, even the rocks will. So I love that. When you say you're dumber than a box of rocks, yeah, that's okay, because a box of rocks would give glory. Um, you know, and, and so this idea, he deserves this praise. So it's, there's glory. There's also, you see here, majesty. This term only occurs a couple times in the New Testament, believe it or not. Hebrews 1, uh, also mentioned in Hebrews 8, it refers to God's greatness, his awesomeness. There's an overlap here between the two, and, and that's okay, because the two attributes together place in high relief the importance of not turning away from the one who holds the most honorable position. And certainly that fits again with this backdrop of false teachers who are seeking to strip the Lord of the glory he deserves or seeking to share it with him. And that is not an option. Jude says, that is a work. <laughs> and, and so to him be glory, majesty. Also notice he says power, which is also a common term in doxologies in the New Testament. I think of Jeremiah 32. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Answer, nope. God's power, it's, it's, it's what theologians refer to as his omnipotence. 
God can do anything, catch this, he wills to do or anything that is consistent with his character. That's important to remember. God is not going to sin because it's inconsistent with his character. So we have glory. We've got majesty. We've got power. We also see authority. That is the Lord is in control. <laughs> he alone possesses the power to vindicate his name. I love the lyrics to the hymn, Oh, worship the King. Oh, worship the King, all glorious above. Gratefully sing his power and his love. Our shield and defender, the ancient of days, pavilioned in splendor and girded with praise. That is why to undo or seek to thwart God's created order and all that he intends is an affront to his very character. Because what does Psalm 19, Romans 1 state? That creation reveals his glory. <laughs> we applaud creation as we look to God. It's to exalt his name. And so to, what does Satan want to do? Unravel it. Undo it. Redefine. What does it mean when God said he created man and woman? And so the Lord alone possesses the attributes that we see here. And then notice what Jude does. He says, <laughs> Before all time and now for all eternity. The, the phrase here is very unique. You're not going to find this in any other New Testament doxology. It's extensive. And he's saying it, it, those attributes are here now and forever. He says that if you question that, he gives one big hearty amen as he concludes. It's, it's that seal of approval. That's it. We're done. Amen. The world promises to meet one's needs, yet they cannot figure out peace, homelessness, or even how to define woman. The world seeks stability, and yet all they can provide is chaos and a free fall. The world is passionate about love and joy, yet they provide no assurance of lasting relationships, offering only depression and emotional bankruptcy. The world offers freedom and liberty, and yet their solutions result in enslavement to sin and addictions. The solution is not a system. It's not an organization. It's not a movement. It's not a political party or even an individual. The solution for humanity is found solely in the Lord. <laughs> the one who is worthy of glory, majesty, power, and authority. As I was kneeling by that bed last night, as Paul is ushered in the presence of the Lord, what else, who else is going to provide assurance? What does this world offer Paul Hetty in those final hours? Nothing. But God Almighty does. He says, I will be there so you don't fall, and I will be there to have you stand in my presence. If you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior this morning, you are playing with fire. And literally. <laughs> Our days are numbered. What's 3, 13, 23, 83, 103? It's still very, very brief. Today is the day for repentance. We stand before a God Almighty who loves us dearly and he's willing to provide the resources for us. 
Again, where's the solution? It's found in the Lord. And so what are the implications from this doxology, these closing words? I've given you three in your notes. First of all, anticipation of joy in the future should prompt our rejoicing in the present. In Gallup's recent latest global emotions report, didn't know there was such a thing, but in 2021, 28% of people said they experienced a lot of sadness. You know, wow, well, that's probably due partly to the pandemic. Well, let me give you another. Pew Research this past March said four in 10 U.S. adults have experienced high levels of psychological distress and ages 18 to 29, 58%. Wow. And you say, well, yes, you only need to drive on 465 to realize how angry the world is these days, right? You better be right with God before you pull off of 465. We as followers of Christ should be, again, I said it earlier, the most cheerful people walking the globe. We have a relationship with the Lord. We know where peace is found. We know where hope is found. In Philippians 4.4, 4, Paul says, who's in prison? He says, rejoice always. And what does he say in verse 5, which we often miss? The Lord is near. <laughs> the end is coming. And that's what Jude is saying here. The false teachers might deny it. The, the false teachers may make fun of it and say, oh no, you can't believe in the hocus pocus stuff. Uh, the Lord is returning. Just as he promised and fulfilled literally those prophecies of old, they will be fulfilled again in the future. When you begin to grow anxious over finances, uncertainty, confrontations, work, losing control, aging, meeting new people, relationships, illness, or simply overthinking, turn that area over to the Lord. Perhaps you need to commit these two verses to memory. Remembering that the Lord will not let you fall and he will cause you to stand. Be joyful. Secondly, the God of the past is the same God who's working today and is guaranteeing our future. Jude knew this. Remember, he's the half-brother of Jesus. <laughs> he saw it all. Hebrews 13, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I love the Puritan Richard Baxter. He writes, this life was not intended to be a place of our perfection, but the preparation for it. <laughs> The hurts and guilts of the past, the sorrows and challenges of the present will be over when tomorrow comes. Hmm. It is that time when we will hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in few things. I will put you charge of many. Enter into the joy of the master. That's what Jude is reminding to the believers who are waffling in the faith, who are getting bombarded with heresy. He says, stand strong. God is going to help you do that. Do not bend. And that message is just as relevant then as it is today, is it not? <laughs> and third, we shouldn't wait until our deathbed to look to the Lord. Remain in God's love. It's an ongoing activity. 2 Timothy 4, is, Paul says, you, however, be self-controlled in all things Enduring hardship. Fulfill your ministry. He says, I'm being poured out as an offering. In other words, I'm about to die. He says, but I have completed. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. 
And finally, the crown of righteousness is reserved for me. The Lord, the righteous judge, will award it to me in that day. And I love it. Paul does not end there. Listen to what he says. And not to me only, but also to all who have set their affection on his appearing. Paul, Jude, invites all believers to anticipate with confidence the same triumph, the experience of certainty and hope that awaits his saints. So, O believer, rejoice. <laughs> the days may be difficult, the hour is dark, but we must forget, we mustn't forget, we serve a Lord who is not only able to keep you from falling, but will make you stand. Why? Because he's the only God, our Savior, a God who's worthy of glory, of majesty, power, and authority, now and for all eternity. Amen. Amen. Father, we come to you and we rejoice. What a glorious little book. Nestled here in the New Testament to remind us that in the midst of dark days, days which we are in, there's no doubt. And that doesn't surprise us. Your scriptures tell us that. But even in the midst of this, Lord, you are there. Why? Because you've called us. You've wrapped us in your love. And you are keeping us to the day when Christ comes. So that we can stand, not just by the skin of our teeth, but with praise, with purity. And what privilege to be in your presence for all eternity. Until that day, Lord, we cling to you and we thank you. It's because of Christ in whose name we pray.